I'll be preaching from Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. If you turn in your Bibles there, um, we're actually going to read a little bit more than just our passage for, for context. So we're going to begin our Scripture reading in verse 27. Matthew chapter five, excuse me, Luke chapter five, verse twenty-seven. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, "Follow me." And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old desires new, for he says the old is good. Well, just like the passage that we heard read to us this morning from Matthew, we are in a in, in one of these various contexts of Jesus being confronted by um, the Pharisees and scribes, and in the in the passage that was just read in Matthew, Jesus is dealing with an issue where the scribes had taken. And, and the Pharisees and scribes had taken, and they were in self-righteousness, putting forth the doctrines of men as if they were the com- commandments of God. Our passage is very similar in that respect. Now, I want to start with this illustration um, reminding us of the children of Israel when they were leaving Egypt. You remember how the story went. God had displayed himself in mighty and powerful ways. He had, he had done all of those plagues in Egypt. He had led them out of Egypt by a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. He parted the Red Sea. As they were escaping the pursuing army, he provided bread from heaven and water from a rock. He'd spoken to them at Mount Sinai. 
And he'd even given them verbally at this point the Ten Commandments. And yet for all this, they still fashioned a golden calf to worship instead of the true and living God. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32, if you would. Now, I'd normally reach for water, but my wife wasn't here to give me, to get me water. Thank you, Bob, if you would. I'd really appreciate it. Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6. Now, God has already done all of these things. He's already displayed His might and power to the children of Israel. And this is what we find in Exodus 32. Verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us a God who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off your rings of gold that are in your ears or in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said... This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, it's easy for us to think, man, if I'd have seen the sea parted, if I'd have eaten the manna in the wilderness, if I'd have seen water come from a rock, there's no way that after God has just verbally given me the Ten Commandments, where the first one says, you know, thou shalt not create any, any gods to worship resembling anything in creation, that I'm not going to break that one. It's easy for me to think that. Yet the children of Israel, after experiencing all this, Moses takes a little bit of time up in the wilderness, and that's one of the very first things they do. Oh, he's not coming down. Let's, let's build a God. Let's build an idol to represent this God who, who took us out of Egypt. Now, some of the translations read God's plural, but that's simply because the word Elohim is always plural in Hebrew. Even when it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our Elohim, the Lord is one. It's still a plural word. And we understand that knowing that our God is a trinity of persons. But what I want you to notice is that neither Aaron nor the children of Israel thought that they were worshiping a different God. Neither of them thought that they were worshiping a different God, even though they'd already received the Ten Commandments verbally and they knew that they weren't to make any any images of creatures or, 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 or 
things in creation to represent God. They decide to replace the true and living God with an image fashioned like a creature. This morning, we've reached the third of five consecutive confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees. In the first, we saw Jesus respond to the charge of blasphemy for for forgiving sins. And he does this in, in his response. He responds by proving his divinity, by showing his authority over the universe in the miracle healing of the paralyzed man. In the second confrontation, Jesus reveals the self righteousness of the Pharisees as he explains his purpose in going to the sinners and tax collectors with the gospel of repentance, saying, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this morning we pick up that discussion in verse 33. Here the Pharisees, they're pointing out a seeming inconsistency with Jesus and his disciples. I would imagine that their reasoning is going something like this. If indeed Jesus was seeking to call sinners to repentance, wouldn't that mean that these sinners should look like us? The righteous Pharisees? Look at verse 33 again. Thank you, Bob. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Do you see the charge? They're basically saying, so, okay, let me get this straight. You're coming to call them to repentance, these sinners and tax collectors, but instead of them repenting and acting like us, the righteous Pharisees, you and your disciples are acting like them, eating and drinking. The Pharisees had totally missed the point of Jesus' words. They were so thick that they actually thought that when Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous, to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners, that he was actually calling them righteous. They had no clue that he was charging them with self-righteousness. Basically telling them that as long as they, as long as they thought that they were righteous because of their external religious works, They would never see their desperate need for a Savior. They would never respond to His call of repentance. So it's in their assumption that this third confrontation comes. It's in their assumption that they bring this charge to Jesus. And sadly... While they are hearing Jesus' words, it's obvious from the way they continue to respond that they're just going right over their head. The Pharisees expected that the repentance of sinners would look like a conversion to Judaism. But the reality that Jesus was there to express is that there's no going back to the old Now that the new is here, there is no returning to the shadow now that the substance has arrived. 
the Pharisees, like the children of Israel in the desert, they were trading the true and living God for an idol. And just like the children of Israel should have known that an idol was no replacement for God, so too the Pharisees ought to have known that their works righteousness was no substitute for the perfect righteousness required by the law. The law should have drove them to hopelessness. It should have revealed to them their absolute helplessness. But instead, in, in, in blinding arrogance that's, that's so common to man, they just change the law to fit them. They make it external. By Jesus' day, they had added 600 plus commandments to the law of God. Laws that God had never asked for. And like men following a golden calf instead of the true and living God, they set about to follow their own man-made laws, obeyed externally in the flesh, and based upon their works. They judged themselves to be righteous. But in reality, they had become spiritually proud because of their law-keeping. And it wasn't for no reason that they were somewhat spiritually proud. As we read of Paul when he says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As to the law, blameless. They kept externally the law of God and the laws that they had added to the law of God in a way unequaled. But as Jesus taught, it is not external obedience that God desires. It is heart obedience that God desires. You remember Jesus when he was talking to the woman at the well? He says, not in this mountain, but God is desiring worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus further explains this when he's teaching in that memorable sermon where he's saying, if you hate in your heart, you've already committed the sin of murder in your heart. If you committed lust in your heart, you've already committed the sin of adultery in your heart. This is what Jesus is talking about when he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Full of dead men's bones. I mean, on the outside, they are... They are, they had the appearance of fine stone. But on the inside, there was a rotting corpse. And just as they had done in all areas, on all other areas of their dead religion, they had turned the spiritual practice of fasting into a legalistic ritual to be performed. Not to draw near to God, but rather to show off their piety to other men. 
practice that Jesus, by the way, expressly forbids. Matthew chapter 6, if you turn there, verse 16. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. Jesus talking about fasting. He says, And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do you know in the Old Testament law, the Jews were only commanded to fast once a year? And that only at the Day of Atonement. That's the only commandment to fast in the entire Bible. In the New Testament, we haven't been given a command to fast at all. But the Pharisees had made it a religious duty. You weren't a good Pharisee if you didn't fast twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. You were not... You, 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 you might be... You know, you might be a Jew, you might belong to God, but you weren't... You weren't really... You know, or like we would say now, you know, you might, you know, you might be a Christian, but you're... You know, you're not really... Really spiritual... Now, as a spiritual practice, fasting was meant to show mourning. It was meant to show repentance, contrition, brokenness for sin. The idea is that in the abstaining from foods, one could demonstrate that broken and contrite heart that the Bible speaks of as necessary to approach God. Because God, as we know, He resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. The Pharisees bring this charge to Jesus. This, this, this legalistic, self-righteous charge by their day making fasting such a, 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 a burden around the people's necks. And now they come to Jesus, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, and they, they're basically accusing Him Of not worshiping God right because he's not doing it like the Jews. If you're really calling them to repentance as you say you are, Jesus, they'd convert to Judaism. They'd be fasting like us, but instead, you and your disciples are looking more and more like them every day. Eating and drinking. Let's look at Jesus' response, verse 34. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, the way that Jesus responds to the Pharisees 
is very telling. He doesn't respond to them by, by, by saying, Nuh-uh. He responds to them by giving to himself the Old Testament title of bridegroom. He calls himself bridegroom. I mean, this is a this is a title that is filled with meaning. It is how God referred to himself in his dealings with the children of Israel and his relationship with them. He was to them a husband, a groom. And throughout the New Testament, this, this idea is, is captured by the apostles and they apply it over and over again to Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul basically tells us, he says, that all marriage is given by God as a divine illustration of Christ and His church. In his letter to the church in Corinth, in his second letter to the church in Corinth, he writes, For I feel divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Friends, in taking this title upon himself, Jesus is declaring his deity. And his words, they are dripping with mercy. I'm reminded of what he says to the woman at the well. When he asks her for water and she says, how can you being a Jew ask me a Samaritan for water? And Jesus responds, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Do you see that here? It's as if Jesus is answering back to them, scribes, Pharisees, teachers of the law, you self-righteous ones. If you knew the gift of God, if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, you wouldn't be fasting, you'd be celebrating. I mean, Jesus is so clear with them here that you almost just want to grab him and shake him and say, don't you get it? Messiah is here. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords is standing right in front of you and he's offering you peace with God through repentance. And instead of receiving that gracious gift, you're sitting here telling him how he ought to be practicing your religion. The Pharisees and scribes had missed the point completely. And Jesus responds by cutting straight to the heart of the matter. Jesus couldn't make the disciples fast. Because that would be like asking them to deny the truth of who he was. To make the disciples fast would be for them to make a public testimony in their action that says, Jesus is not the Messiah. It would be basically to declare that the bridegroom wasn't there. 
He wasn't with them. Jesus continues on. He says, days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Referring to his death. Yeah. When I'm taking away, then they'll fast. Then they'll mourn. Then they'll seek after my presence. But right now, I can't do that. I mean, this reinforces this Jesus' point. They can't mourn right now. Because now, while Jesus is with them in their presence, in their midst, it's a time for celebration, not for mourning. The long-awaited Christ, the promised Messiah, was with them. The picture is clear, friends. Jesus, the groom, Jesus is the groom and the disciples are the wedding guests. The Pharisees thought that Jesus and his disciples were less spiritual because they did not fast and offer praise in the ritualistic, legalistic way that they had determined was right for a member of Judaism in good standing. But the reality couldn't be more clear in contrast. While the Pharisees religiously fasted and prayed, they were no closer to God when they started than when they finished. On the other hand, no matter what the disciples did, whether they ate or whether they drank, they were in the presence of the bridegroom. Fasting couldn't bring them closer to God than they were. Emmanuel was with them. God was with them. For them to fast would be ridiculous. It would be a contradiction. How could they seek to be nearer to God than they were standing in the presence of Jesus? This is how... Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip, he's a little thick. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus would not ask his disciples to fast because they were already in the presence of God. To ask them to fast would be asking them to deny it. We'll close this morning by taking a brief look at the uh, parables that close out the passage. Verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old, desires new. For he says, 
the old is good. Now I want you to notice the key words in all three of these parables. There is a contrast being made here between that which is old and that which is new. In the first two, any attempt to mix the new with the old fails, ruining both. And in the last, Jesus declares the difficulty of embracing the new for those who have grown accustomed to the old. In the first two, the figures of clothing and wine are used. The new refers to embracing Jesus as Messiah. Repenting and receiving the gospel. The old refers to Judaism and all of its man-made laws and rituals. Jesus is telling these self-righteous Pharisees and scribes that to come to him, to receive his gospel, to have any part with him, they will have to abandon Judaism. They will have to abandon the old to receive the new. And any attempt to mix the two will ruin both. Jesus is calling them to repent of their religious system, to repent of their self-righteousness, and making it clear that they could not add Him to their already good religion. Now I want to apply this to us in our day. Throughout the so-called Christianity of North America, it is becoming increasingly popular to combine Jesus with other things. But the gospel doesn't give us any room for that. You cannot, as some have tried, follow Jesus and Muhammad at the same time and form Chrislam. You cannot combine the teachings of Jesus with the teachings of Joseph Smith as the Mormons. You cannot combine the teachings of Jesus with the teachings of Buddha, Baha'u'llah, or even St. Germain as our own I Am or Cult does. The claims of Jesus are exclusive and require abandonment of all other teachings, worldviews, religions, or philosophies. I'm Southern Baptist. And in Southern Baptist, we have an epidemic. Did you know, out of, in, in Freemasonry, the satanic cult of Freemasonry is made up of mostly Southern Baptists? I mean, this is a pagan religion with blood oaths in which they swear allegiance to a Luciferian God, and yet they go to church on Sunday and claim to be Christians. You can't combine Jesus and Masonry. You can't combine Jesus and, and Islam. Jesus was the only way then, and He is the only way now. Listen to His words in John fourteen six. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. The Jews couldn't come to Jesus without abandoning their system. Without abandoning their religious system. 
friends, there's no reconciliation for lost sinners with their creation, with their creator, apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. And so the call to repentance is not just a call to turn away from acts of sin, but it's also a call to turn away from every system, philosophy, or religion that contradicts or contends with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have lots of people tell me over and over and over again, how could you dare say Roman Catholics are not our brothers and sisters? They hold on to a system that will not allow them to worship Jesus and hold to their view at the same time. You realize we're about to, in just moments, we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We do this once a month and on special occasions. In, in a remembrance of Jesus' broken body and shed blood in remembrance of that great act of substitution which God did for us in crushing His own Son as Jesus drank the cup of wrath that we deserve in our place and testifying through our actions of what God has done for us in the cross of Christ. Yet every Mass... Every Mass, the Roman Catholic Church takes up these elements and worship them as if they were Jesus Christ, declaring Him to be bodily present in them. They're worshiping a false God. And they do it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And just like the Pharisees, Jesus' message to them would be, you need to abandon your system if you're going to have any part with me. The Pharisees and the scribes, they could not be in fellowship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as long as they were worshiping through the golden calf of Judaism. They would have to surrender the old to receive the new.